This is episode number 473 with Dr. Anima Anandkumar, Director of Machine Learning Research at NVIDIA and Professor of Computing and Mathematical Sciences at Caltech. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is John Crone, a Chief Data Scientist and best-selling author on Deep Learning. Each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. I am so excited to have Professor Anima Anandkumar on the show today because she is an absolute rock star. Anima obtained her electrical engineering PhD at Cornell before carrying out postdoctoral research at MIT and then landing a professorship at the University of California, Irvine. She now is distinguished as a Bren professor at the California Institute of Technology, typically known by its short form Caltech, a university ranked by several sources in recent years as the world's number one research institution. As if that didn't already merit my absolute rock star moniker for Anima, she's also Director of Machine Learning Research at NVIDIA, the world's number one hardware manufacturer in the artificial intelligence space, and a top research institution in its own right. In today's episode, we cover the cutting-edge interdisciplinary research Anima carries out at NVIDIA and Caltech, applying highly optimized mathematical operations to allow state-of-the-art machine learning models to be executed on NVIDIA's state-of-the-art hardware, such as on their prized GPUs. This blending of leading software and leading hardware enables world-changing innovations across disparate fields from healthcare to robotics, and Anima provides countless examples of such real-world applications. Anima tells us what it's like in the workweek of a researcher like her bridging the academic and industrial realms, including the open-source data science tools and techniques that she most highly recommends. We discuss the skills you should develop if you'd like to devise or deploy state-of-the-art artificial intelligence approaches yourself, and Anima blows my mind by filling me in on how biological neuroscience research is inspiring deep artificial neural networks that can learn in just a few training examples like an infant human can. This episode is relatively technical at times, so might appeal most to seasoned data scientists, but I did my best to break down and rephrase the main points of all the technical content we delved into in order to enable anyone to follow along, including folks only getting started in data science. This episode will be hugely interesting to anyone aspiring to carry out cutting edge AI research, or even if you'd simply like to better understand how AI is changing everything. All right, you ready for this incredible episode? Let's go. Hi, Anima. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. Uh, where in the world are you? Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be on the show. I'm currently in California, in Bay Area. Um, such a beautiful day outside. But like, you know, most of us, we are still, right, uh, in virtual meetings. But the good yeah. thing is we can connect to people across the world now. It's true. Yeah, we do have a beautiful day here in New York as well. Um, I haven't been to my office now in a year, <laughs> uh, but it's starting to get better. It's amazing. Over the last month, 
Um, I've been watching every day the uh, positive infection rate for coronavirus on Manhattan. A month ago, it was 3%, and today it's under 1%. So, yes, indeed, indeed. And, you know, I'm fully vaccinated, and it's just such a, you know, load off, right? You feel mentally relieved and slowly getting to meet people and uh, getting back to some form of normalcy. Um, On the other hand, um, back in India, where I'm from, where I grew up, um, the sad thing is there is such a big surge and um, yeah, I hope, I hope uh, we can get all the supplies and vaccines there and do our best to save lives. It so, is. It, mm-hmm. Yeah. At the time of recording at the beginning of May, it is one of the biggest coronavirus tragedies that we're aware of on the planet. There could be places where there's less testing and maybe it's also very bad, but in terms of any places getting tested, it's by far, it's, um, it's, yeah, it's really terrible how how it's skyrocketed in the last few weeks. So I don't know, maybe that's something if listeners are listening, uh, there are lots of places to contribute. You probably see on social media, people are posting for places that you can donate so that uh, supplies can be provided. Uh, shortages of oxygen, for example, are a big issue right now in India. Yes, indeed. Speaking of India and the pandemic, you and I, before starting recording, we were talking about how you just discovered yoga, which is interesting because you're from a, t- a region that is the birthplace of yoga, right? Yes, indeed, John. Uh, I'm actually from Mysore, which uh, right. you know, in the 18th century was the king of Mysore who, in a way, rediscovered yoga. So, you know, yoga was in the scriptures, but he uh, really encouraged people to practice that and formed yoga schools and that's where uh, you know it took off to the world from there Um, but yeah growing up you know I did Indian classical dance Bharatanatyam which has elements of yoga which I suppose is similar to that Um, but I wasn't like kind of doing yoga you know in a very disciplined manner and when the pandemic struck and we're all you know inside the question is what can I do without a gym without any equipment and that's when I started doing it daily and saw such an immense improvement in my overall well-being, in my flexibility, in just like, you know, how my emotional and mental state, especially when we were going through so much of uncertainty around the pandemic. Um, so I really hope more people discover the joys of doing yoga. And I got to learn that you are a yoga teacher, which uh, is awesome. <laughs> uh, I have, there are some really funny, um, maybe at some point I should add them to my YouTube channel because people will probably find it really funny. But years ago, yes, I was a yoga instructor and there's even, there's videos from, so Cosmopolitan Magazine uh, created a uh, portal for fitness called Cosmo Body. And I did yoga videos. Wow, so you have Cosmo Body, that's all. <laughs> That's uh, a great I don't know. Fame to fame. <laughs> but there are there's some clips on YouTube, and I guess I could add them to some random thing on my channel. Maybe <laughs> maybe I'll do that. I don't know. Maybe I I'll be too totally embarrassed. Go and take a look at those. <laughs> maybe I can get useful tips to improve I, my practice. I don't know. Uh, so what have you been using to? So if you weren't studying it before, and now you've been doing it every day, how have you been studying it? I think that's where there is the positive of social media, right? There are lots of videos, but also on Instagram, like just looking at how people are correcting poses. So it's kind of like now we are acquiring knowledge in so many different ways. 
And I think that's useful, like, because, you know, you can no longer have a physical instructor amidst a pandemic. And but there are so many other ways to discover doing yoga and so many interpretations, which I think is very healthy. Uh, you know, it's to me, that's how we evolve culturally, right? When people start bringing in their own ideas into also what yoga is. Yeah, I agree. So basically you've been, you've gotten an eclectic mix from various sources. So you're kind of like, I'm going to do it every day or pretty much every day, but exactly my source for the particular flow that I'm going to do today is, uh, is variable. That's cool. Yes. And sometimes I do it just with no video, right? At this point, it's like, nice. You've really come along. (laughs) Yeah. You're kind of like movement, you know, like how we, as a dancer, like, you know, kind of just Right. Ooh, so how to fuse everything together. And, and I think that's the most important part of yoga that's been helpful is to look inward. I mean, it's not a competition of how much can I balance <laughs> or am I better than these other people, right? So living all that and just kind of looking inwards and listening to my body, I think that's been the most beautiful aspect of yoga. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I don't want to make, uh, I don't want to focus on any part of my journey. This is all, all about you on this episode, but yoga was a huge transformative force in my life that brought me, I used to be a trader at a hedge fund and I started doing a regular yoga practice and I would have experiences on the mat where I was like, for a few seconds, I was like, wow, I'm here in my body, in this room, instead of being caught up in the trades that I was making that day which is what was going on in my mind all the time. And I was like, wow, it would be nice to feel present for more than just a few seconds. And eventually I realized that I wasn't going to be able to keep being a trader. That's that's really beautiful though, that you could discover that because so many people are just caught up in the stresses of daily life. And right. I mean, I think that's what the pandemic has also shown us how life is precious and how we want to, make the best of it and, uh, you know, find ways to be very productive, but in a sustainable way uh, that's also healthy for us. Beautifully said. Eliminating unnecessary distractions is one of the central principles of my lifestyle. As such, I only subscribe to a handful of email newsletters those that provide a massive signal-to-noise ratio. One of the very few that meet my strict criterion is the Data Science Insider. If you weren't aware of it already, the Data Science Insider is a 100% free newsletter that the Super Data Science team creates and sends out every Friday. We pour over all of the news and identify the most important breakthroughs in the fields of data science, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. The top five, simply five news items. The top five items are handpicked, the items that we're confident will be most relevant to your personal and professional growth. Each of the five articles is summarized into a standardized, easy to read format, and then packed gently into a single email. This means that you don't have to go and read the whole article, you can read our summary and be up to speed on the latest and greatest data innovations in no time at all. That said, if any items do particularly tickle your fancy, then you can click through and read the full article. This is what I do. I skim the Data Science Insider newsletter every week. Those items that are relevant to me, I read the summary in full. 
And if that signals to me that I should be digging into the full original piece, for example to pour over figures, equations, code, or experimental methodology, I click through and dig deep. So, if you'd like to get the best signal-to-noise ratio out there in data science, machine learning, and AI news, subscribe to the Data Science Insider, which is completely free and no strings attached, at superdatascience.com DSI. That's superdatascience.com DSI. And now, let's return to our amazing episode. All right, so speaking about uh, being productive in a sustainable way, you are an, an incredibly accomplished person. I've been so excited. Uh, for, I've known for months that you were going to be on the show, and I've been excited for months. So uh, you have two primary roles. You're the director of machine learning at NVIDIA, and you're also a professor at Caltech. So I guess uh, my first question is, how do you strike that balance in a given week? Is it, do you have kind of like, I, I spend a certain number of days on one or the other, or how does that work? Yeah, that's a great question, John. I think uh, right now I, I'm really privileged to be in a in a place in the AI revolution where there's a lot of open research, right? Like what we are doing at NVIDIA is open sourcing and publishing widely and making that available to the community. Mm -hmm. So democratization of AI is such an important part of the goal. And that's where university and industry research can go hand in hand and find ways that we can benefit both, you know, like a university and uh, the open source community. So in that sense, you know, there are certainly projects that are ongoing in both the places and there are sometimes good synergies and we exploit that. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's That's perfect. Say, and especially with the pandemic, right, things going virtual, uh, it's a lot more seamless to look at different projects and how they're progressing. Uh, but I do miss sometimes the in-person interaction. A hundred percent. We actually, uh, we... We're, we're, we're interviewing right now, we're hiring data scientists. And so we, I had an amazing interview with someone last week and I was like, would you be comfortable meeting in person? And so we don't have an office right now. We decided to save money by not having an office. And so uh, he came over with my existing data science team to my apartment, I got them sandwiches and we got to uh, do this interview in person, have a physical whiteboard and yeah, it's just so nice. There is really something about it. Anyway, um, so it's great to hear that there's this perfect synergy between uh, both of those um, parts of your life. So do you want to fill us in on some specific projects, some specific applications that you're carrying out? Yeah, absolutely. You know, at NVIDIA, my team uh, is looking at how to develop next generation AI algorithms. Right, meaning from these currently narrow domain, mostly supervised learning, how do we go to broadly generalizable AI that can work with uh, wow. unlabeled data that uh, is robust, uh, that's adaptive. Ultimately, it becomes embodied, meaning you know you have robots that are agile and intelligent. Um, so all in you know, a lofty goals, but grounded uh, with foundations in terms of how do we you know, develop these new algorithms, how do we have benchmarks and infrastructure to evaluate them? And that's where the synergy of NVIDIA's, or of course, large-scale GPU infrastructure, um, data centers, but also verticals, right? Like if you see what uh, NVIDIA has been doing over the last few years, 
is to build robust infrastructure for different verticals. You know, NVIDIA Clara for healthcare, NVIDIA Omniverse for graphics, um, and using that as a one-stop shop for all kinds of graphics processing along with AI methods. Isaac for robot learning, how we can train robots in simulation because we can do that at scale. We can get slots of simulated data and then take that and deploy them onto real robots on our ETX or the Edge platforms, you know, with Jetsons and Xavier's. And wow. so now we have cars that will soon be supercomputers, right? So we'll have such amazing computational abilities in our future cars um, that will, you know, self-driving is one aspect of it, but even the integration of all the sensors, you know, the ab- availability of good user interfaces, um, driver assistance, all these are aspects, you know, where we are partnering with uh, companies like Mercedes-Benz and BMW uh, from having cars that are very intelligent to having manufacturing facilities that are also intelligent and you can have robots that are social and that can navigate and uh, do all kinds of tasks in such complex environments. So wow. at the media side, <laughs> there's so much activity going on and it's like really looking at where uh, we can make um, a very big impact on these hard challenging problems. And that starts with building robust infrastructure, great GPUs, great hardware efficiency, and then enabling algorithms that are able to exploit that. Yeah, I guess in a way, NVIDIA's sweet spot probably is in problems that have a lot of computational complexity, where those kinds of efficiencies that you have in being the world's foremost uh, GPU manufacturer. Uh, so I this is might be known to many listeners, but we should probably spend two minutes on it just in case, which is why people train machine learning models, particularly deep learning models, on graphics processing units, GPUs. I could do a little spiel, but I feel like you could do it much better than me. <laughs> yeah, thank you, John. I, you know, many people don't realize, right, that this deep learning revolution would not have happened if not for NVIDIA GPUs. And so st- taking a step back, when we think of the deep learning revolution, you know, we all know deep learning consists of deep neural networks. It's the flexibility of these networks to learn features that was really critical. But they've been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. So what made the difference in the past decade, one was data, right? We have web scale data. Uh, Dr. Fei-Fei Li created uh, the ImageNet and the rest mm-hmm. is history. Mm-hmm. But you had to finally run them on compute infrastructure that was scalable and that could easily implement neural network primitives. And that's the common point between GPUs and deep learning, right, is the availability of linear algebra primitives and then quickly building on top of that, like QDNN and other CUDA frameworks to enable the scale. Otherwise, we would never have realized this. Um, But that, again, is the beauty of it, is the common language of math, linear algebra, that's at the foundation of almost all algorithms. Matrix multiplication everywhere. (laughs) Yes, yes, the world is about matrix multiplication and now tensors, which I can get into in a bit. Uh, Yeah. mm -hmm. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, the important aspect is for NVIDIA to have the foresight to be 
not just focusing on graphics acceleration back in 2000s, but to say we need CUDA because we need to democratize GPU programming. And that's how we can then look at applications beyond graphics, you know, other scientific applications and ultimately AI. So I think that kind of um, foresight into building platforms that are broadly applicable is so important for this AI revolution. Beautiful. So I guess so in the 2000s, primarily NVIDIA GPUs, which are the foremost, by far the most um, widespread GPUs, um, by far the state-of-the-art GPUs from any chip manufacturer. And so I guess in the 2000s, they were primarily being used for rendering graphics. So people who are editing videos, people who want to be able to play video games with, with a really fast frame rate. And so anybody in the 2000s who wanted to be able to do those kinds of things at the state-of-the-art level, they're buying NVIDIA GPUs. Mm -hmm. But because of that uh, open sourcing of CUDA and allowing people to program with CUDA, it allowed people like Alex Krzyzewski at Jeff Hinton's lab in the early 2010s to take Feifei Li's data set that you mentioned, the ImageNet data set, and allow that to flow through a neural network architecture, now called AlexNet after Alex Krzyzewski. And so he had this idea of let's take two NVIDIA GPUs, he knew how to program them with CUDA, and then split the data training over these two GPUs. And now that kind of idea happens people, I mean, you probably know better than me, but there must be individual projects where people are using thousands of NVIDIA GPUs in parallel to carry out this matrix multiplication that's a key part of training a neural network. Absolutely. You know, when we are now looking at the large-scale language models, right, how do we enable such um, uh, heavy uh, computational requirements? Uh, we've open-sourced Megatron. Again, the source code is available online, where... It's a mix of data and uh, model parallelism. So how do you get the best efficiency out of, say, 1,000 GPUs or uh, you know, even more? And uh, I think it's exciting times, right? What is the power of scale? What can scale bring to AI? But also, what is the power of good hardware design, good algorithm design? So now we are going from like somewhat low-hanging fruits, right? In the beginning, you know, like looking back, it's obvious because once you have data and the GPUs and neural networks, magic happens. Uh, but now the question is, where do we go from here? Right? And that brings to going beyond narrow tasks to broadly generalizable AI uh, and looking at robustness, you know, real world applications require fairness, um, detection of bias. So these are much harder problems. Uh, but that's where now... We are in a position to address them. We are in a position to do research on them. And that's where I see great opportunities. Nice. So there's a million places that we could go from right here, but you've mentioned tensors a few times. So is this kind of this clever programming around tensors and how they're applied to GPUs? Is that part of the key to being able to generalize more and more? I guess we should explain what tensors are too in a few in a few sentences. Yeah, absolutely, John. Thanks for bringing that up. Uh, you know, tensors have been at the core of my research even before deep learning uh, was you know uh, in the picture, right? So, and the idea how I got into tensors was you know as I said, linear algebra is at the foundation of most of machine learning methods, mm -hmm. uh, but we were also starting to see the limitations of what linear algebra can do. Right. And that was in the framework of unsupervised learning, where you want to discover underlying latent 
uh, factors. For instance, think of a huge collection of documents, um, say news articles, and you want to automatically categorize them. Uh, whereas each uh, news article could have multiple topics in them, right? So you could have not just like a monolithic, like clean uh, classification, and now you have lots of mixtures of topics, and they're also not labeled. And so these kind of hard discovery problems, you can ask, you know, how can you use different machine learning methods to discover the underlying topics? And so if you're looking at simple methods such as um, spectral methods, looking at principal component analysis, you know, extract the most informative part of the signal uh, through linear algebra that gives you some information, but not everything. And so the natural question was, can we go to more dimensions? And nice. that's so, where, mm-hmm. Sorry, I, uh, so principal component analysis, it allows us to take unlabeled data, like you mentioned, so we could have a data set of millions of news articles, and we don't know whether they're politics, sports. And then, as you said, there could be situations where a politician goes to a sports game. And is that news article, you know, does it fit into politics or sports? Um, it's hard to tell. And so you have these mixture topics. Um, so, uh, with principal component analysis, we can, um, estimate the, what we call the principal components. So the, uh, the dimensions in the data that correspond to the most variation in the data that account for the most signal. Um, but you've, so you and I, even prior to recording, and now that we've been recording, I think you mentioned the word for the first time, spectral. That actually, I don't know what that means in this context. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have to explain it to me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, when we're doing principal component analysis, we are extracting the spectrum of the matrix, right? So spectrum uh, means eigenspectrum. Like, uh, what are the principal directions where there is the most energy? And so people use the term spectrum to mean the eigenspectrum, mostly the top eigen components. And nice. so that principle has been at the foundation of a lot of machine learning methods. But the limitation is principal component analysis looks at only the covariance of the data matrix, meaning only pairwise relationships, right? In the case of the document example, you can think of it as looking at co-occurrence of two words in a document. You know, let's say the word apple occurs a lot in a document, you know, you don't know is it about fruit? Is it about a company? Let's say the word apple and orange occur together. Even then, you know, like orange could also be a company and a fruit, right? But let's say you keep expanding now to more dimensions. You have like co-occurrence of apple, orange, banana, grapefruit, and at some point you become more confident that it's a fruit because you have now information of these higher order relationships. And that's the main principle of how tensors can be much more powerful in giving uh, access to such information. And those are the structures we exploit in the algorithms we are designing. And so back um, in the early 2010s, when we started working on these tensor methods, the idea was to apply it to such document corpus in an unsupervised way and at scale, you know, over billions of documents, be able to extract topics automatically. And when I went to Amazon Web Services, I helped build this onto the cloud platform in the topic detection tool. So it was really nice to go from a theoretical concept, you know, understand its properties, analyze that, build robust code now and have that be running at scale. So 
those are the end-to-end kind of things we can do in AI now, right? And in a very short period of time, and that's very exciting. Yeah, that's another beautiful example of the this way that you straddle the academic world and industrial applications. So you're doing research uh, at the time, I don't know, was it your postdoc research at MIT? Uh, uh, it was, it was uh, the beginning of my research as faculty at UCRY. There you go, at the University mm-hmm. of California, Irvine campus. Yeah. And, um, and so you're able to take that theoretical research, this ability to use uh, tensors, which we, sh- we still should define, um, to be able to uh, perform uh, this kind of topic modeling in a more powerful way than has been done before, and then apply that directly at Amazon Web Services, who at that time, like they are still today, the biggest cloud provider on the planet. And so when you're talking about at scale, uh, there is no bigger scale than at <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. And that's where I think it's the combination of core algorithmic foundations with scale, I think that will create a lot of magic. And so coming to your point about defining tensors, think of them as extension of matrices to more dimensions, right? At the very kind of basic definition is matrices have rows and columns. Now, you know, if you extend it to three dimensions, it's like a cube, uh, it's a multi-dimensional array. Uh, but the difference is it's not just a collection of elements, right? So just as in a matrix, you can now think of a low rank matrix, right? You can think of uh, uh, projecting onto a subspace. We can similarly use the tensor as well to do operations. So what would a low rank tensor look like? You know, that's effectively using fewer parameters to describe this huge cube. And so you can extend this notions of spectral analysis to tensors. And if you're uh, you know, interested, we have a book called Spectral Learning on Matrices and Tensors by Now Publishers. It's uh, you know openly available. You can download it. And oh, it's freely available. Yes, it is. Oh, it is. wow, that's nice. Yeah, so spectral, <laughs> beautiful. So Spectral Learning on Matrices and Tensors, your book, uh, which is on all of these topics that we've been talking about the last few minutes, linear algebra, tensors, uh, matrix operations, um, identifying the most important components of a tensor or a matrix, like um, the eigenspectrum, the eigenvectors and eigenvalues. Uh, very cool that that's open source. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we also have Tensorly as an open source uh, framework uh, you know, that has multiple backends. So it's Python-based, uh, but you can connect it to, of course, PyTorch, but also uh, JAX, MXNet. And the idea with this is uh, you can easily now use tensor methods, right? You want to decompose a tensor, already there are efficient methods available and running efficiently on GPUs. Uh, but you can also now define tensor operations as layers of a neural network. Mm-hmm. As we mentioned in the beginning, uh, neural network layers are primarily consisting of matrix multiplications and other simple operations. But there's no need to make them just matrices, right? We can expand to more dimensions. And that's what the tensors provide, uh, the ability to have much better inductive bias of data. So think of your data as multidimensional. You know, think of video or multimodal data. Right. Uh, there's no need to put them all into matrix in these layers. If you keep track of the different dimensionalities, you can um, come up with networks uh, that are much more compact. So you compress them, you have fewer parameters, 
but actually better accuracy because they generalize better and uh, they're also more robust. So you're getting multiple benefits together by expanding your neural network architecture to have these huge possibilities of tensor operations. Very cool. So as an example, I'll, I'll try to illustrate and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, but uh, you mentioned video. So with video, we have, of course, you know, if you pause the video, you have the rows and columns, which is a matrix. But even if, even just with that paused video, if it's in color, you have to have three color channels, red, green, and blue. So already you can't capture the information in a single matrix. So you could say, okay, I'll have a red matrix, a green matrix, a blue matrix for this paused mm -hmm. frame of video, mm -hmm. but why not put that in a tensor with depth? So now you have rows and columns for all the pixels and three layers of depth for the three color channels. But we can press play on the video. <laughs> so uh, so the, we can have those, we can have that three tensor, that three dimensional tensor uh, have a fourth dimension, which is time. Um, and you can't picture that in your mind. <laughs> Our brains don't do it, but um, computers can have, you know, can represent any number of dimensions. And so I guess, so what you're saying is if we, instead of trying to deconstruct that video into matrices and force that through a neural network, we can leave it in its four dimensional uh, initial state and the operations are more efficient. And we also, I guess we identify more signal. And then you said something about inductive bias. I don't Yes. I mean, the inductive bias means like trying to mimic the structure that's present in data. Uh... Right? We're doing that with convolution because, you know, we expect like translation invariance to be uh, what we see in the way images are formed. And uh, so similarly, if the data is multimodal, you know, you have all these four dimensions or more dimensions, you're trying to kind of mimic that structure. And that means you should have a much better neural network with that. That makes perfect sense. So yeah, instead of trying to break it into pieces and study them in that kind of reductionist way, you're looking at the whole picture, the whole video holistically um, and identifying patterns in that. That makes a lot of sense to me. So the, the library that you've open sourced for that uh, out of NVIDIA is Tensorly. So Tensor, T-E-N-S-O-R-L-Y, L Y. Mm -hmm. Yes, nice. yes. Um, check it out. We also have like notebooks and tutorials. Uh, recently, uh, we gave an NVIDIA GTC talk at the GTC conference uh, that's also openly available. So lots of resources. I should also add another uh, tensor framework uh, that we've open sourced from NVIDIA, which is the Minkowski engine, which focuses on sparse tensors. So if further you have sparsity as the structure, which is the case, say, with point clouds, right, and other 3D processing. Um, so that kind of uh, uh, information can you also propagate? Can you keep your network to do sparse tensor convolutions efficiently and do that on GPU as well? Um, so that's also, I think, an excellent framework uh, for all the upcoming uh, area of 3D vision and beyond. Nice. And so Minkowski, I'm taking a stab at spelling this correctly, M-I-N-K-O-V-S-K-Y? K-O-W, yes. Ah, <laughs> come on, you Russians. Uh, sure, that's what we get for trying to take the Cyrillic alphabet and throw it into ours. Um, all right, so Minkowski, um, brilliant. And so very cool to hear about um, these, these particular open source projects that you're working on at NVIDIA. 
earlier when you were talking about NVIDIA work, you were talking about so many different kinds of applications, Clara for healthcare, um, Isaac, uh, I assume named after Isaac Asimov, for <laughs> uh, uh, robot learning. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so are there any particular projects in NVIDIA that you're really passionate about or involved in that you'd like to dig into some detail on? Yeah, yeah. You know, very uh, passionate about Isaac and Omniverse, right? Because what Omniverse does is bring together the two important strengths of the company together in a very synergistic way, like all the graphics processing, rendering, and AI tools. How do we bring the infrastructure? And so, you know, it starts with first having like all the assets, right? Like, you know, we are uh, creating an AI factory, which mimics what the BMW manufacturing plants look like. And for mm. that, you know, everything like from cars to humans who are assembling it and other machinery, how do you bring all this to the simulation environment? A digital and, twin. Yes, absolutely, a digital twin. So creating that, right, is also an involved process. And that's where also having ray tracing technology, uh, which renders highly photorealistic images and being able to have that visual quality uh, but also more importantly, also the physics of it, right? So if you are now, say, holding on to uh, some object, it should be physically valid, right? Because then we can transfer it uh, to a real robotic arm by first doing it in simulation. Um, so there is the graphic side of it. There is the physics simulation. Wow. And doing all this first in simulation and asking there's a domain shift between simulation and reality. How do you close that gap? what are robust methods that can handle it. And so one of the projects we've been doing is with a four-legged robot we call Lycago that can uh, know that we have uh, very um, realistic simulations uh, that are physically valid and we teach it all kinds of skills, right? And that's the beauty of simulation. You can give it all kinds of curriculum. You can try to let it first walk on a slow treadmill, maybe only one of its, like one side of it is moving. You can try to get it to turn. You can try to ultimately get it to skateboard in simulation, which we all did. And then you can bring it to the real robot. And we, we do hierarchical reinforcement learning, which means you don't learn from scratch in simulation, like what say AlphaGo or other uh, gameplay is being done. For robotics, this would just not transfer, right? And it's too hard to do everything from scratch. So the idea is to bring in all the control and robotics background into that and ask how do we add learning on top of it and have the right mix. And with that, we can do efficient transfer to the real robot. Um, same with the robotic arm. You know, How do we get you know, something that humans do so easily? We pick up all kinds of objects and we can do all kinds of crazy juggling tricks. Can we get a robot to juggle? <laughs> And uh, the idea is, yes, it's much more feasible in simulation first uh, because you can have a lot more trials and that's the beauty of it. So we're very excited about uh, the possibility of sim to real by using uh, the powerful graphics rendering and uh, physics-based simulations where NVIDIA has deep expertise in and combine that with AI methods. Nice. So it's kind of an overarching theme that I'm starting to get from this. And I mean, you said this, but I guess I'm bringing it back up because it's becoming increasingly clear that one of the most beautiful things about what you get to do at your job at NVIDIA is that NVIDIA has 
all of these hardware, um, all of these hardware assets available to them. So GPUs, I didn't know about the robotics aspects of it. And then you get to figure out how can we efficiently create software tools. Um, so, and that goes down to the lowest levels, like tools like Tensorly and Minkowski that allow you to efficiently perform uh, not just matrix multiplications, but other more advanced tensor operations. Um, so at, th at this very small level, and then how can we build up those um, very small uh, linear algebra operations uh, at scale uh, across GPUs? So use a whole bunch of GPUs um, to, to in parallel perform these computations, these linear algebra computations, efficiently learn and then we can take those model weights that maybe we um, that we train up in a simulated environment, and then put them into an actual physical real-world device. So whether mm -hmm. it's the BMW factory, or I, I didn't catch the name of the four-legged robot, it's something <laughs> like like a go. Like a go. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, you're right, John. Uh, the idea of you know, NVIDIA as a company, right, there's always the full stack view and the barriers to collaboration are non-existent. So that's where, you know, wow. I can think about methods that go to the core of, you know, hardware efficiency, for instance, you know, better quantization methods, right, uh, to like having frameworks like Tensely and Minkowski Engine that can do efficient uh, tensor operations, but also have like a clean Python frontend for, developers to use. And then on top of it, we have all these amazing platforms like Omniverse and Clara with uh, very application-focused uh, infrastructure. And how do we contribute that impact all the way through, right? And that's where being at NVIDIA is like being part of a big family, <laughs> uh, where innovation is so seamless. Wow. So people who do machine learning at NVIDIA like you, what kinds of tools do you use? So you mentioned PyTorch already. I imagine to get really accelerated. Well, I mean, obviously, so things like CUDA, the library um, for uh, for programming GPUs, CUDNN, which allows CUDA to perform deep neural network um, operations. So obviously, those are some of the kinds of tools that NVIDIA is closely involved with. But how about you? What do you use day to day? Yeah, so, you know, my team is working on a variety of different tools, right? So absolutely, you know, PyTorch is the one we tend to use a lot because of the ease of programming, uh, but also like tools like weights and biases, for instance, right, which has, you know, like TensorBoard is the common one, but with weights and biases, you can track your training uh, very well and keep track of experiments. Um, so those kind of tools are a great value addition. Our team uh, uses that quite a bit. It's an ML ops tool, yes. machine learning operations yes. tool, weights Thank and biases. Yes. Yeah, they're cool. And they, they do a lot of education as well, Yes. Um, which is neat. Yes, indeed. And uh, PyTorch Lightning is another one I'm very excited about because of the modularity on top of PyTorch. You can now make the code reusable. You can put different modules together. It's uh, very clean code writing. So I think it brings out better practices into how we organize our software code. Um, so yeah, those are ones I would uh, I know suggest. 
Um, and the other important one is uh, AMP or automatic mixed precision, right? That's oh, now I haven't heard natively of that. available with PyTorch and TensorFlow both. Uh, and the idea is that, um, you know, this is developed by NVIDIA to maximize the GPU efficiency. So automatically mm. you figure out what is the level of precision you want in different operations. Uh, and that's where we are heading, where we've realized oh, we don't need full precision. You can right. get away with really low precision. Uh, and so the tools like that are really great in improving efficiency. Cool. That's really useful. I hadn't heard of a specific uh, tool for doing that. So we've hacked together ways of reducing precision you know, within TensorFlow or within PyTorch, but it's cool that there is a library for optimizing that. Mm -hmm. So. In case the listener isn't aware, this is hugely useful because when you're using hundreds of GPUs in parallel for doing your computation on this massive data set, the way that you're representing your numbers, the precision that you have on those, so uh, the number of places after the decimal that you're handling, um, it turns out that you don't need very many. Mm -hmm. And so by getting rid of all those numbers, many of the numbers after the decimal, you can save a lot of space um, so your compute is a lot cheaper. Um, things progress a lot more quickly. Training progresses more quickly. Inference time in production runs more quickly. So maybe an application that you thought you couldn't run in production now, oh, we just found we can just get rid of some of this precision and we can run it in production um, at the cost that we were looking to. So hugely valuable, especially when you're when you're working at a massive scale like you are. Indeed, indeed. And, you know, it turns out we can push this even further, right? So one of the papers we had NeurIPS last year where, you know, NeurIPS is the uh, main machine learning conference. The premier machine <laughs> learning conference, no question. Indeed, indeed. And where we figured out that, um, you know, in most of these, if you're looking at floating point representation, there's a part for the exponent, there's a part for Mantisa, right? So essentially it's like exponent is like how many like, you know, like you want uh, these wide dynamic range and then within that, the precision lies by the Mantisa. And we figured out you can just throw away the Mantisa. So it can just be what? a logarithmic. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Yeah, and, and the inspiration comes from neuroscience. Uh, so Marcus Meister, uh, who's a neuroscientist at Caltech, whom we collaborated with uh, uh, and where we... Uh, you know, there's a lot of evidence where in the brain that's how information is stored and that's what leads to low power requirements and still the ability to represent signals with a large dynamic range. And uh, we're able to now train networks uh, with as little as eight bits uh, in the logarithmic number system uh, that is as good as full precision uh, framework, say with ImageNet, BERT, all the standard models so which is very exciting you know if you can get down to very low bit requirement uh, you can then run them on edge devices right you can really decrease the cost of training and inference uh, and make this widely available and so so that's where you see like you know there are existing tools and but we are also looking in a futuristic way how much can you get rid of precision and still have useful models that's super cool. I I didn't know we were that far along. Uh, and I'm excited to hear that. I'm also excited to hear the neuroscience link to something you probably don't know about me yet, Anima, is that I have a PhD in neuroscience. So uh, wherever I can in my book, Deep Learning Illustrated, whenever I have the opportunity, 
I love drawing parallels between the neuroscientific inspiration of artificial neural networks, including deep learning neural networks. And so I'm glad to be able to add another one to my arsenal here. And it also gives me the perfect segue to talking about Caltech interdisciplinary science in general. So it sounds like by being able to work with neuroscientists, I mean, you just gave an example, so it doesn't just sound like it's obvious that through this kind of interdisciplinary approach that you get through working at, working at Caltech, um, you get exposed to ideas that lead to truly transformative applications like you just described um, in the precision space. So do you wanna tell us a bit about what Caltech interdisciplinary science is all about? That's great, John, you wear so many hats. And I do believe that neuroscience uh, is very much crucial for getting AI to the next level, going from narrow AI to broadly generalizable AI. You know, we humans uh, have amazing abilities in our uh, reasoning skills, in our uh, abilities to compose entirely new aspects, say in music or in art that was never seen before. Uh, we are able to learn as babies in an unsupervised way, right? Just look at the world around us, get such a robust representation of the world. So how do we manage to do this? Uh, in another project uh, with Dorisal, who's a neuroscientist at Caltech, what we've been exploring is the feedback mechanisms. So in our brain, we are looking at, um, you know, if when you're looking at me, uh, you're processing through the retina and it goes into the visual cortex, right, in a feed-forward manner. But we also have feedback from IT cortex and other parts of the brain uh, based on an internal model. And the idea is it has some kind of generative information. You know, that's how we dream, we hallucinate, because we can visualize uh, without even opening our eyes. And so that ability is currently missing in our uh, AI models. So what if we build this? What if we can uh, provide the ability now to not just do a feed-forward prediction, like we say, do it on the ImageNet data set to recognize what's in an image, but also have like a feedback, you know, have a uh, model that's learned in a generative way and let it kind of ponder more. So the idea with feedback is you're not just doing a one-shot one decision. You're instead you know, kind of thinking, right, in a very, of course, without realizing, is this really part of the internal model? And if not, can I filter it? And so that gives us inherent robustness in our visual perception. And we see the same happen also with neural networks, artificial neural networks, that feedback uh, is able to handle different kinds of noise and corruptions that were never seen during training. Right. Uh, so you can kind of uh, have this ability to be much more robust to unseen corruptions, have zero-shot generalization. We are now working on few-shot generalization benchmarks. And so that's a very promising, I think, aspect of taking inspiration from neuroscience to build much more robust uh, mechanisms for artificial neural networks. Nice. So I'm going to try to, in my own words, repeat back to some of repeat back some of what you said. So uh, to distill it for the audience. So uh, another big idea here is that we can use our understanding that in the brain, we're not just in real time taking in uh, the visual information, but exactly like you said, through infrotemporal cortex, prefrontal cortex, we can loop and uh, we can bring up visual imagery, and that if we can 
simulate that better in our artificial neural networks, in our, say, our deep learning neural networks, um, we might be able to rede reduce the number of examples that we need to train a model. So you talked about few-shot learning or zero-shot learning. And so it sounds like we're at a stage now where we're addressing that few-shot idea where, um, based on just a few training examples, this feedback loop kind of allows the neural network to simulate more real-world circumstances or be more robust to circumstances it hasn't seen before. Because today, if we think about the standard feed-forward neural network, like an AlexNet architecture that we talked about earlier, uh, it can't do anything like that. If it hasn't seen examples exactly like, uh, well, not exactly like this, you can have some some generalization, but very limited generalizations. Um, so it uh, over the last 10 years, deep learning networks generally generalize uh, poorly to out-of-sample um, uh, test images, say. Mm -hmm. So the idea here is that by looping, it is, yeah, so like in a biological brain, we could, in fewer examples, um, learn and maybe even have zero shot learning. So actually, like a even an infant human can, deduce things about the real world and kind of know how what what input what output is going to result from a given input without having had any training examples mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah i think that's uh, at the core of uh, fragility with the current neural networks right so if we can make them much more robust like humans too and learn in a self-supervised way which is another important development so mm. instead of having uh, explicitly labeled data, can you create supervision on their own? Can you create different kinds of the data transformations that we know are invariant uh, to what's in the image? Uh, can you use that information? And there's also evidence that babies, you know, when they're right, like trying to understand the world around, they're moving their head, they're trying to reason about occlusions, the foreground, background separation, so these kind of self-supervised learning could also be biologically motivated. Yeah, so the generalization aspect uh, that we are talking about is so important. Uh, you know, one, of course, to make the AI broader, right, but also for the sciences. So at Caltech, we have the AI for Science initiative that aims to uh, bring AI into all scientific applications. Uh, but the primary challenge in so many of those is we require zero-shot generalization. For instance, if we are asking about discovering drugs, you know, we want to make a molecule that's probably never been done before, right? So how do you reason about properties of molecules that uh, are not well represented in the training data? And so this is where we also need domain knowledge. You know, it's not just data-driven, but there's a lot of knowledge that's available, right? For instance, with the molecule, uh, we know the Schrodinger equation, the famous equation that tells about the energy of the molecule and all the properties, you know, how soluble it is, how toxic it is. And these are aspects that we need to bring in. And that's where one of the projects at Caltech, we've been working with uh, Tom Miller, who's a um, professor of chemistry, and bringing in that domain knowledge and asking, what are some features like molecular orbitals that we can compute cheaply. Uh, so that's, uh, think of that as a domain-specific feature, but combine that with graph neural networks. So you're getting a hybrid model that combines the best of domain knowledge and the flexibility of neural networks. 
And that's able to do the zero-shot generalization. So you only need to train on small molecules, um, say up to size 30, and that's where you know getting training data for that is cheap enough, right? And then directly generalize to much larger molecules, 10 times or more. Right. And that ability means we can now replace traditional methods with deep learning-based methods that are thousands of times faster. So you get this amazing speed up and zero-shot generalization when we collaborate with domain experts. Um, that's one great example. Another one uh, is in the domain of partial differential equations, which is at the core of so many scientific applications. And Navier-Stokes uh, is a famous one for modeling fluid turbulence. Right? It's highly multi-scale, very, very expensive. You know, That's what if you're doing for climate modeling, uh, you would need supercomputers of the world uh, to be able to simulate that because of the complexity of those calculations. And what we've seen is the ability of now neural networks, what we call neural operator, that is based on Fourier transform, which is, again, a fundamental operation. So these Fourier neural operators are able to uh, replace traditional solvers and get thousands of times speed up and still retain the fidelity. And the cool thing is you can just use low-resolution training data and directly generalize to high-resolution evaluations. So this form of zero-shot generalization or few-shot generalization becomes so critical in scientific applications. You know, so what we are building, say, with neuroscience and getting inspiration, hopefully has a broad impact in uh, so many of these areas. Yeah, that's really cool. This this generalization is obviously an important theme to you. So um, being able to take what might be considered narrow applications of a machine learning approach and seeing how this um, generalizes uh, to other domains. And I guess, uh, as you mentioned, you mentioned artificial general intelligence. So this is a theoretical algorithm that could um, learn the same in the same way as a, as a person, the same diversity of things that an individual person could. And I guess that's, we're making steps in that direction. You are specifically mm-hmm. making uh, steps in that direction by coming up with these kinds of ideas, few-shot learning, zero-shot learning, and uh, by being able to apply them broadly across domains, this is increasingly generalized artificial intelligence. Yes, absolutely. And the idea is to build strong foundations for that, right, and be able to carefully test what are the generalization capabilities. So scientific applications give a great way to test that because you know we have like uh, ways to verify is this a drug-like molecule or not, for instance, or is this um, fluid uh, simulation having like physical properties we expect it to have. So there are other metrics we can evaluate with, which is great. Um, but also like going back to how, you know, we are visually processing information, can we have good benchmarks where Humans do very well, but AI methods, right, is challenging. It just doesn't overfit to some uh, examples and cheats its way to do well. So we've created a benchmark called Bongard Logo that's, in fact, inspired by a classical Bongard challenge that was created to look at human cognitive reasoning abilities. Uh, But now we've made it ready for the deep learning age and asking, you know, how well can you do these few short learning methods work? on uh, visual reasoning and concept learning challenges, uh, something that's very natural for us humans, how well can uh, machines do 
And that's, again, having challenges like that also means that, you know, uh, researchers can develop new algorithms and test them carefully, because if you can't test them, then you don't really know their true abilities. Uh, so that Bongard, uh, I'm going to, how, how do you spell that? B-O-N-T-A-R-D. Uh, you know, I almost guessed that. I, I almost said that. You heard me kind of say, I'm going to guess. And that's what I was going to guess. I promise. I wouldn't lie to you. I believe you. That's exactly how I was going to spell it. Uh, but uh, I didn't. So I can't prove it. I'm glad that you believe me, Anima. And, um, uh, and so if, if you're ready for me to kind of to move from these amazing ideas, yeah. so tools like Bongard that allow us to evaluate the increasing generalization of these AI approaches. So obviously the work that you're doing is extremely fascinating, cutting edge research. It sounds to me from the discussion we've been having so far, obviously there's some programming ability that people need to be doing this work. So we talked about uh, tools like PyTorch, ML ops tools like weights and biases. Um, and I, th I assume that kind of thing becomes comes in handy when we're working at the kind of scale that you're working at, distributed learning over many, many uh, GPUs, um, that kind of ML ops is hugely useful to ensure that we're doing it efficiently. And I dare say, it sounds like uh, knowing the fundamental mathematics well. So linear algebra, you talked about partial derivative calculus. And so uh, that's music to my ears. So mm -hmm. we already know about spectral learning on matrices and tensors, your book for learning about linear algebra. I've been working on this book, Mathematical Foundations of Machine Learning that focuses on linear algebra and calculus and probability theory. Because I've seen this same gap where I, I totally think that the most fun and interesting way to get into machine learning initially is by learning how to call things with high-level APIs. Mm -hmm. Learning how to make PyTorch layers, seeing that this amazing power um, of, of the way that a neural network can approximate uh, inputs to outputs. But then you start to run into barriers. There's limitations on what you can do by calling these kind of high-level functions. And so that's why I created this um, curriculum. So uh, it's a Udemy course that I have in collaboration with uh, Super Data Science. And so people can check that out. Um, but so it sounds like those are all things that people need to be doing research like you do at NVIDIA or at Caltech. What else? What are other critical skills that people need to be working with you? What do you look for in people that you hire? Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are all great resources, John. And, uh, you know, thank you for doing the very important work of making linear algebra and these mathematical foundations accessible to the broader public. I think that combination is so critical, right? Like having that strong mathematical foundation with uh, deep learning tools. And so, you know, like you want this mix of somebody who is not uh, worried about getting their hands dirty. They're like hacking their way a little bit. They're kind of using their intuition, but not solely on that, right? You should also like try and make sure the experiments are reproducible, but try to reason about what is the principle that's emerging here. Can we scientifically experiment and come up with some hypothesis and test them carefully? So that's, I think, that important aspect of having a strong theoretical foundation so I teach Foundations of Machine Learning course every winter at Caltech, and you know the videos are available online as oh, well. Oh, nice, beautiful! So, you know that kind of foundation that I emphasize 
you know, and, and many times we start with just classical machine learning, right? Like, for instance, PCA we talked about. And the idea is, is it applicable to all real world applications? Certainly not. But understanding why it works and where it doesn't work is so critical to build that foundation. And so taking the time to work on that and then at the same time, be not afraid to run experiments at scale and be uh, ready to like, you know, have, do some engineering work as well, because a lot of what we are doing at, is at cutting edge, right? If we are, uh, for instance, looking at these simulation tools, we want to build new simulations or we want to uh, build like new Python bindings for that. You know, there's also those aspects. Some of them could be a bit mundane, but you need that to bring the overall uh, idea to fruition. Uh, so somebody who is a quick learner, who is, you know, willing to take risks, but understand what the risk means, right? Because, you know, like research is always about doing new things and that is risky. And so having that balanced approach of, uh, you know, really motivated and positively thinking about taking these risks into the unknown and at the same time enjoying that journey and asking, you know, let me take a step back sometimes and think about, you know, what these experiments are telling me. Uh, is there a theoretical reasoning behind that? You know, even if I can do it only in the linear regime, is this something that is meaningful? Or maybe it's not, and there's a reason behind that. So that aspect of back and forth. So the analogy I give is, say, chemists or biologists who go to labs and do experiments, right? That's how we want to think of ourselves as AI researchers. You're now going and peeking into neural networks and you're trying to tease out answers by designing good benchmarks, good experiments, uh, and they should be reproducible, good software practices. Uh, but ultimately, you know, it's also the scientific understanding you glean out of that. Right. Like the idea is, you know, if you have the elephant and the blind man, you know, they're each only like looking at the small parts of the puzzle, you won't get the big picture. So you have to have the ability for the big picture, but enough focus to also get some of the details right. That's a do you want to elaborate on that analogy, the elephant and the blind man? Do you want to flesh it out? I, I don't know if everyone knows it. Uh, it's a good one. Okay, sure. Uh, the elephant and the blind man, the idea is, you know, if there are blind men just uh, uh, figuring out parts of the elephant, they don't understand what this overall being is, right? So if you're too focused on some low-level details, but you miss the big picture, you don't have understanding of other parts of the uh, framework, uh, then you can be in trouble. So the ability to both zoom in and zoom out is so important. Yeah, exactly. So it's something like there's like one blind man that's feeling the trunk of the elephant. And so th uh, so you deduce, I don't know, it's like a snake or something. I can't remember how the story goes. Or if you're feeling yeah. the tail, you think it's like a fluffy animal. I don't know. Yeah, but I don't remember. Exactly. The yeah, it's too hard to do. I don't know. I can't memorize things like that. Um, but perfect. The analogy is understood. Um, that is beautiful insight. And I, I love all of those topics. Uh, it, yeah, it shows just how fascinating the work that you're doing is. All right. So I asked on LinkedIn a week ago before we recorded, if people had any questions that they'd like to ask you, and there were tons of really great questions there. 
maybe you'll have a chance to uh, answer some of them asynchronously because we've already been talking for so long and I know that I've already made you run over a meeting. So I know that uh, Anima is already going to have to go and apologize to somebody because uh, I didn't tell her what time it was and how long we've been recording for. So uh, because just, we are having such a great time here. <laughs> uh, I'm being very selfish. Um, so uh, I'll just have one question, which is from uh, Noah Gift, who was actually a recent guest on the episode, on episode 467. Um, so he has a lot of experience with Caltech, and he said, do students at Caltech still play Ultimate Frisbee at lunch? <laughs> this is how I originally learned Python was while playing Ultimate Frisbee. Maybe they learn AIML this way, too. So do you know anything about all this Ultimate Frisbee being used to learn AIML concepts? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, Caltech has like such a great mix of, you know, like nerd with sports, right? So, uh, you know, the way uh, we, even before the pandemic, we have all these like outdoor like uh, blackboards. So people can like kind of write math equations, discuss, and then wow. they can go off, like play, come back. So, yeah, we really encourage uh, a great atmosphere for learning and, uh, of course, the California weather also, <laughs> you know, most of the time cooperates with us in that aspect. Uh, but yeah, that's a great memory to bring up. That's very cool. I didn't know anything about that. And I guess I'm going to have to visit Caltech at some point. Mm -hmm. um, so and then the final question for you, uh, which is one that we always ask, is a book recommended is a book recommendation. Obviously, we already have your spectral learning on matrices and tensors. That sounds like an awesome book for digging into linear algebra and tensor operations. Do you have any other recommendations for us? Yeah, I'm really excited about the new book uh, that uh, you can preview online called Learning Deep Learning or LDL by Magnus Ekman, who's also a fellow NVIDIAN and I was very happy to write a foreword for it uh, because what I saw was just such a great way to get started with deep learning, you know, having a firm understanding of the principles like we discussed before, but also program code that's efficient, that's uh, runnable, that's something you can do hands-on. And so this is such a great mix. And it you know starts from the starting, you know, foundational principles of deep learning, but goes to the latest frameworks, right? Like such as GANs, language models. So it's very up-to-date while also making sure the fundamentals are present. It's a beautiful recommendation. And given that that book has the same acquisitions editor as I do, Deborah Williams of Pearson, I know that she will be delighted to hear that you make that recommendation as well. And I hear that you wrote the forward to it. So I'm sure Magnus and Deborah very much appreciate that as well. All right, Anima, this has been such an amazing episode. I learned so much. I wish I could keep you here for hours more and ruin your calendar for the rest of the day, but I will let other people get to you. So thank you so much for being on the program and hopefully we'll get a chance to have you on again soon. Thanks a lot, John. I really enjoyed it and I also got to learn so much. So this was such a pleasure. I almost never get nervous about anything in my life, but I must admit that I was nervous in the weeks leading up to filming this episode because Anima is such a massive name in the machine learning world. As it typically turns out with almost everything we worry about, there was nothing to be anxious about at all. Anima was so personable, down to earth and fun, I absolutely loved filming this episode with her and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Anima engrossed us with so many fascinating topics today, including invaluable open source projects she works on at NVIDIA, like Tensorly for applying linear algebra operations, 
and Minkowski for working with sparse tensors. Her favorite data science tools include PyTorch Lightning, AMP, and Weights and Biases. We talked about the importance of linear algebra, calculus, software engineering, experimentation, and being willing to take risks in order to be an AI researcher at institutions like NVIDIA and Caltech. And we talked about how cutting-edge GPUs, the clever application of linear algebra within software, and ideas from biological neuroscience are allowing machine learning to become more and more generalizable, enabling AI models to learn from far fewer training examples and to be much more robust to data they haven't encountered before. Amazing. This is definitely an episode I'll be listening to myself because there's so much to learn. I can't imagine I took it all in during filming. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, and URLs for Anima's LinkedIn profile, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com slash 473. That's superdatascience.com slash 473. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd of course greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app or on YouTube, where we have a video version of this episode. To let me know your thoughts on the episode, please do feel free to add me on LinkedIn or Twitter, and then tag me in a post to let me know your thoughts on this episode. Your feedback is invaluable for figuring out what topics we should cover next. All right. Thanks to Ivana, Jaime, Mario, and JP on the Super Data Science team for managing and producing another amazing episode today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science podcast with you very soon.